Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Darren Gloucester was the first dedicated business hire to join the Arms Reliability when all but two employees were located in a small office that overlooked the beach in Australia. Darren was brought up to uh, revamp the company's online presence, but was quickly exposed to the commercial sales and operational aspects of the business. After becoming a partner in 2007, Darren moved to the United States to head up the Arms Reliability International Division, and just over a year ago, Darren was promoted to the role of COO. He currently is leading and supporting global operations for arms reliability, working with their teams in Asia Pacific, North America, EMEA, and Latin America. And we're on an exciting journey to scale, grow, and continue their industry success. With that, Darren also lives in kind of two of the coolest cities in the world, in Melbourne, Australia, and Austin, Texas. So looking forward to learning from, uh, from Darren and his role and having you on the show. Darren, welcome. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, so why don't you give us a little bit of a background as to what Arms Reliability is? I mean, I've poured over the website, but I know a lot of our listeners haven't yet. Tell us what you guys do, what your service is based on, and then um, I'd also love to hear a little bit about your journey in becoming the COO. Yeah, sure. So the, I guess the 30,000-foot view of how we help clients is Arms works with the largest industrial operations globally. And typically, those large industrial operations manage significant assets, mechanical, electrical, operational type equipment that helps produce whatever it is that they produce, be it oil and gas, mining operations, power generation, water utilities, and everything in between. So we help those companies optimize their maintenance strategies for that equipment. We help them understand how the equipment fails, uh, when it does fail, how long does it take them to repair, what resources do they use. And then we put that uh, all that information into some computer simulation software and packages. And out the other end of that spits out an optimized maintenance strategy that basically helps them to either produce more of what they're currently doing, operate more safely, or reduce environmental exposures and risks. Now, you just made that sound pretty simple. Is it actually that simple or is it a little more complex? Uh, it's a little more complex, yeah. We hire lots of smart mechanical engineers typically. They do uh, lots of wonderful things, but I guess I've had a bit of practice explaining it to people that you meet kind of all over the world and, and trying to simplify it. Uh, there's you know lots of mathematical equations and algorithms and simulation tools that help us do what we do. But I guess part of the reason we've been successful is also taking kind of that pragmatic industrial approach and facilitating the information in such a way that allows people to optimize it using some smart decision-making tools. So you're, what would the smallest clients of yours be in, in revenue size? Like half a billion in revenue? Would that be on the small end? Or do you go smaller? Yeah, I would, I, I would guess so. That would probably be the lowest, the, the lowest point that would have a, a cost of failure or an impact of failure that is large enough for them to invest in, in something like what we do to help them optimize that. Yeah, that's probably the lowest entry point, I would suggest. Yeah. Okay. And then give us the scope um, in terms of the operation that you're running. What, what business areas do you oversee and how many total employees, you know, where are they located, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So we're a um, boutique solutions provider. We mix um, consulting and software solutions together. And so a bit different and a bit rare in that we provide that, I guess, pragmatic advice, consulting advice that also enables, enables us to 
uh, put our software solutions into our client organizations as well. We have a little over 100 people globally and typically my role encompasses the management of the operations and then a fairly um, large and sale, a large sales and marketing influence and exposure as well from my background and kind of how I grew up in the business. With, with your scope that you're running, what's, who's the CEO and what, what areas of business does he run or she run? Yep. So CEO is Jason Apps um, and reporting to Jason is myself. The, the, now the marketing organization in a, in a recent reorganization that we've had, the marketing organization reports to him as well. Finance, administration and HR comes under our CFO and reports to him. And then we have that, our technical group as well. So essentially the product. So we have a, a CTO uh, and a team of developers that, that report into him as well. Okay. And what areas of the business would he love to offload to you? Typically, that's part of what we've, what we've really done, that the operations and sales component allows Jason to really focus on, on thought leadership and, and the ongoing development of our intellectual property and, and our software. That was a, a shift for us probably over the last two to three years was to try and create lots more of that bandwidth to help him do that and help him drive, I guess, our innovation forward in the background allow me to, to focus on the operations. Um, I have general managers in each region that run the delivery of their region. Uh, and then we have a global sales team through a, an individual sales lead that manages that sales team globally, reporting into me as well. And we recently shifted the marketing organization back underneath Jason because of the close synergies to the product team and, and what they were doing there. Makes sense. And so how many different regions are you operating in and how many total countries do you think you have clients in these days? Total countries, we did do a count uh, rather recently. Over the last five years, we've probably country-wise, we've, we would have operated in over 120, I would imagine. Wow. We have operations in, well, current offices in, in Australia, a number of offices in Australia, um, a few offices in, in North America, an office in London, and then we're pretty much a startup operation in, in Latin America. So we have consultants that are spread across different countries and then also... Um, the Latin American management team actually works out of the same offices as me in Austin. How do your clients find you? Is it the sales and marketing team? Is it word of mouth? Is it um, through industry? And how do you get in the doors of some of these large, large organizations when are they typically looking to buy your services or are you selling them something they're not even aware of yet? I guess we were fortunate growing up as a small business in Australia, which is a very typical small business. So that was one of the biggest changes for me when I moved to the US that Australian economy, probably up until even as recent as the last five years, most small business owners in Australia uh, were all bootstrapped by their, their own profitability. Someone had a good idea, started it, ran a profitable business and, and continued to reinvest in their business. And, and that's exactly what our founder did over a period of time. And really, the Australian industrial market, by comparison to the US, is, is really quite small. Whilst there's many of the world's leading businesses, and particularly in resource-intensive businesses like BHP and Rio and, and the like that have significant operations down here. We were fortunate enough that because the market, I guess, was small, that if you deliver a great product and a great service, that word of mouth primarily was the, the largest component and referrals was the largest component to the way that we grew the business. Sure, we had online presence and, and we'd go to trade shows and conferences and, and do thought leadership type things. But we kind of worked across the gamut of all of the available clientele that we would have in Australia over a period of time. And then we really, when we moved to the US, it was about trying to replicate that business model. 
some of the US businesses that we worked with or multinational businesses that we worked with that had operations in Australia mm. actually asked for us to come over and support what they were doing in the US. So okay. one particular company made a global decision about the technology that they wanted to use and they, we were supporting them in Western Australia and they said, hey, look, that's great, but we've got 17 locations in the US. If we're going to make this decision, you guys need to come over and support us and start an operation over there. So we did that and then really used that as the to replicate what we were doing and go, okay, well, look, if we can make it with with this one company, let's go leverage off the other relationships that we have. Um, but then really from that, it then spawned into thought leadership, online presence. And I guess it's amazing some of the, the places where leads or inquiries will come from these days, but it's a real combination of, I think our, our largest source of pipeline today is conferences and, and industry trade shows where we'll we'll go run workshops, we'll deliver papers, they'll have the typical exhibition booths and, and the like. People with problems will come up and talk to us about those problems and, and then we'll educate them on, on how we would solve them. And then again, the explosion of the internet, not so much social for us yet, but people searching for solutions online. So, sure. you know, as, as simple as keyword searches, looking for hey, I need to do something to this particular piece of equipment and stumbling across our website and, and then going from there. It's pretty astounding, the scope of the operation, because like operating or having had clients in 120 countries, well, I've done paid speaking events now in 28 countries, and that was hard enough. I can't imagine supporting clients in all those regions and dealing with the, do you have to deal with much of the, I guess, the localization of your service? Or is it because it's more of a financial engineering service that you don't have to? Yeah, most of the time we we don't have to. Language barriers are, are becoming greater for us as we continue to expand. I think most of the work that we've done across those countries has been on the back of other relationships with, that we've had with sister organizations um, mm. for those biz, those particular businesses. One of their corporate entities in North America or Australia or, or Europe will make a decision and it just happens that one of their plants or facilities is, is in that particular location. Right. Um, and then we'll go work with, with them on, on that basis. So there's kind of a, a corporate endorsement, I guess, if you will. Typically speaking as well, the management levels within the organizations that we work with, in a lot of cases, are multiple languages that they speak, but English is the, is the professional business language and allows us to work through that. It's certainly been challenging. I guess the, the other challenges that we've come across is things like taxation and other financial considerations that you weren't aware of. Right. Typically, until after you've closed the deal and then had to go through that. That's probably been the thing that certainly our CFO has helped us with, has helped us to slow that down a little bit and go, hang on a minute, it'll come up in some operational meeting. I hear we're talking to somebody in some part of Africa. Have we considered about what the financial implications of that might be? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, for the most part, we're still small enough and our operating entities are, are in other locations that we've managed to not run into too many considerations in that space. So in some of our research around you guys, it said that one of your strengths, I guess, is on onboarding your customers and really providing amazing customer support. So can you walk us through any of the systems you do to onboard and, and related to your customer engagement? It's one of the things that when, when a business has grown the way that, that we've grown over a period of time and um, on the back of its own self-funding, the importance of not losing a customer is obviously critical to that continued growth. And I think we used to, we always prided ourselves on our ability to deliver results and project results that far exceeded the, the client's expectations. So that we'd always pride us, prided ourselves on the, on the quality of work that we did. And I guess also being quite boutique in a, in a very big 
engineering field and an engineering world, we've kind of carved out a, a quite a small niche of that. And our founder really made no apologies about what it was that we did and what it was that we were good at. So we went through a process of the way we, we taught our people. And they, when we were much smaller, they would typically generally work under the founder or the current CEO, who were both technical guys and, and kind of learn from the best, really. As we've continued to grow, that has obviously put challenges on, on how you do that on a global basis. So we've really had to think more about systems and playbooks and frameworks that, that our people need to work within. We've, we've also just recently gone a, under a reorg or a restructure for our technical team to put layers of quality assurance in place. So albeit we're doing a professional service and someone might be working with a really talented consultant, we still need to have, I guess, those interventions in place where somebody that in the back office that has been working with us for a number of years can review the, the quality of that work. Uh, we've done some smart things around the software to look at typical models. So we build decision-making models and reliability models for our customers. So we run the software over the top of that to ensure that all the appropriate fields are, have been populated the way that we would expect. And we use technology to do a bit of that quality assurance as well. But even then, I mean, we're just starting to get into the space of customer success engineers ourselves and recognizing the value that our continued stickiness within our client organizations is. And nothing has really changed from what it was when we were two engineers to, to now over 70 engineers. It's still about getting the customer those results and investing in that continued high quality deliverables that will continue to have them come back. And, and I guess just reduce the, we were just talking about it the other day reduce the continued entry into the growth of our client organization. They just start single sole sourcing work to us and, and the like. Yeah. Do you stay with the clients in long term? Are you with them for longer term engagements or multiple year engagements or is it kind of a one-off? Yeah, it is typical multiple year engagements. We do find that we have a the life cycle of a customer is particularly around a service engagement. Is typically kind of a five-year engagement in that year one, there'll be some kind of proof of concept and pilot studies and business case building for a broader initiative, get great results, start to ramp up in years two, three, and four, and then they either become self-sufficient or there's a new improvement activity perhaps that they're looking to embark upon or, or undertake. And that was a, a large reason for the starting of the development of, of our intellectual property as well was that the enabling tools that, that we utilize to help get our customers results we feel that they can play a big role in the ongoing management of our customers' businesses as well. So um, hence the startup of a software development team to ensure that we can remain with customers on that journey and become part of their business processes on an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's the typical life cycle, I guess. Originally, the, the business, the founder had, had built the business on, on the back of some technology, really smart people and training our customers. And, and the original model was people would get exposed to what we did through some kind of public training seminar or the like. They'd purchased the, the software applications, we'd train them in the software applications, and then we would want them to be self-sufficient. But really in about 2011, 2012, as organizations started to become much, much leaner, they started to remove our typical roles within organizations and basically start to outsource that function. Our service business grew considerably as a result. People started to look outside for the expertise. So rather than developing that expertise internally, Let's just outsource this stuff to, to somebody that does it much better than we do. And I guess it's, um, it's become something of a unique value proposition for us, for our client organizations as well, is that our consultants are doing this day in, day out for 225 working days a year. It is something that's difficult for somebody to pick up and then get involved in operations and mm. get thrown the, 
you know, 101 other things that they have to do on their particular facility on a day-to-day basis. When your employees are, I guess your employees are reasonably remote as well, because they are on site often with the clients, correct? Correct. Yeah, we probably run, I would imagine, typically speaking, about 50% of the time, our guys are away from whatever their home office might be. So yeah, and then we also have a number of engagements where where people are permanently based in, in client facilities. Yeah. So talk to us about, about how you identify the right people to hire, how you interview and recruit them, how you onboard them, and then how do you get people to be able to be a part of your culture when they are so remote? What systems and tools do you use? Spent a lot of time in that space. I guess we've learned a lot over... Uh, I've been with the organization 15 years now, um, so lots of trials and error. And I guess it's something that we're really quite happy with. We've basically added probably 40% of our workforce, 40% of our team in the last 12 months. So that the organization's grown considerably in that last 12 months. And it really did get us to sit back and think about how we were going to continue to to grow and, and, and the like. And we partnered or worked with a recruiter to help us with the sourcing of, of the particular individuals that, that we um, were looking for in the marketplace, which has worked fantastically well. They work on a on a retainer agreement with us. And so over a period of time, they've actually they've gotten used to the types of people that are naturally great fits for us in the organization. We'd spent a lot of time recruiting for not only skills and, and certain attributes. So they will, in a typical engineering space, they'll be interviewed by other engineers. They'll be interviewed by engineering managers, all the way to the point that at the very last stage, I guess we, myself and the, the CEO, interview them either in person or, or via some web platform um, for cultural fit. So at that point, it's, and I often have conversations with them that, look, I want you to forget everything that you've spoken about technically. You've already you know, kind of jumped over those hurdles and, and everybody is, is happy with where that is. This is about what's in your heart and what's in your head. And, and we have like to have pretty honest conversations at that point. We do a fair bit of psychometric testing as well. We use a, a tool called Business DNA that's resonated. I mean, like all psychometric testing, very, very similar. It was the, the approach that really resonated with the management team when we, when we put ourselves through it three or four years ago. I think the beauty of that, that we've found with that is it's less about who the individual is and how they like to work, but it's more about how they marry up with their, who their potential future manager is going to be. So as those guys start getting to used to one another and building a relationship over three and six months, when someone's naturally behaving the way that their personality or how their DNA likes them to behave, that the manager or their peer can actually understand that, okay, excuse the language, this guy's not being a dick. It's just how he likes to operate naturally. This is how I can operate as, a, as their manager or, or leader to get the best results together or work collaborative as a team. And, and similarly for the new employee, they can get a very detailed and deep understanding of, of who their manager is and how they're likely to work together or how they can get the best results. That's become a pretty extensive process now that you know, people will go through something like eight to 10 steps in our recruitment process. Well, um, But I guess when you're hiring as many people as we're hiring um, and as quickly as we've been hiring them, we've just come to realize that whilst that is by no means foolproof, it, it is getting us better results and better outcomes. It seems to be a pretty good mix for us right now. You spoke about you know how do we onboard them when they're remote and and kind of keep the fabric of the culture and the team the yeah. same. One of the best things that uh, I think so our, our CEO has been in his position for about three years. That the founder and former CEO stepped down from operations and remains the chairman of the company. One of the first things that our current CEO did and got a considerable amount of respect for was 
really promoted the, the values that we want to run the organization by. Uh, it was really interesting that originally, back in the early days, you were either employed by the founder or you worked for the founder in some capacity. Mm. Um, and so the way we wanted to behave or what he wanted the company to become was unwritten and it didn't need to be written anywhere. Sure. I mean, you, you got to live it and breathe it every single day and, and you knew how you were expected to operate. Yeah. I guess as we started to grow and new layers of management came into the organization, that was one of the things that became more and more difficult. You had people that were coming from out of the organization that were no longer got to spend you know, 12, 24 months working alongside the founder. I think that was one of the really good steps that we took was creating a set of values. And, and in fact, we, it wasn't even really the creation of the values. We'd created the values previously, but then they'd been put in a cupboard somewhere and never saw the light of day again. But really bringing those out, dusting those off, and then just making them central to everything that we do, central to the recruitment and interviewing discussions that we have, central to the onboarding discussions, central to every operations meeting that we have in industry. It's really common for in our industrial clients to do things called safety shares, where they talk about safety events or near misses and the like, and, and really try and promote that safety culture within their industrial environments. And we do things called, yeah, we do things called value shares. And really, it's about reinforcing the values that the organization has. And where have other team members around the world been exhibiting the behaviors that we really value and, and really calling those out across the management team, across the group, across kind of all hands meetings. And yeah, it's been a, a really powerful thing. And it, it's also a powerful thing in terms of being able to have discussions about poor performance as well, because you just bring it back to the values and how we expect to operate. Oh, that's great. So with in operating in all these multiple countries like this and um, having the dispersed team that you've got and also being engineers, Engineers are obviously really good at putting systems and processes or even called playbooks in place. How do you keep them simple so that they work across all of these countries and all these regions and all these clients? And how do you make sure that your SOPs or playbooks are getting used? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. and certainly something that, we're, that we've struggled with as well. Interestingly enough, I guess the three partners in the business, the founder, CEO, and, and myself, we all very similar in terms of the way we naturally like to operate. And because we've been quite entrepreneurial in, in our focus systems and processes, certainly not our strong suits. And we've been happy to kind of freewheel and, and like the flexibility, as you would imagine, of that. It's certainly one of the things that as we've grown now, it's, it's something that you can see that the rest of the team is um, gravitating towards and yearning for and wanting. We did do some early work, as I mentioned, around quality assurance and, and our framework of our delivery, really the reinforcement of that, we've, we've invested in roles to ensure that that's being executed. Uh, I guess there's no, there's no silver bullet solution we're finding to, that you can use a technology or as much as we would like it to make it that easy. It, it's really about the behaviors and, and what you value and what you continue to reinforce with the team. So we've invested in roles to ensure that, that those things are being executed. Similarly, we've just gone through a big hiring process for the sales team. So that the global sales lead for us has spent um, an extensive amount of time developing the playbook, working through the playbook and continuing to reference that. And from, from the sales side of the business, we believe a lot in the sales process that we think works best. And so really, when you walk into pipeline meetings or we walk into forecast meetings, it's again, just about the behaviors of reinforcing those things. So pulling out that framework, asking those same questions over and over and over again and until it's become natural for people. Talk to us about how you sell into these big companies. I mean, you just mentioned hiring the team of salespeople. I'm curious what lessons you could give our listener in terms of, of how to sell to these big organizations. 
Yeah, the big organisations, the interesting, I think, that we've, thing that we've seen has been nobody wants to be the first, perhaps, has been, has been our expression that we've seen in industry. As long as somebody's done it in the past in, in their particular vertical or one of their related verticals, it's, it's like, oh, that's okay. It's, you know, you rubber stamp to get to the next stage. The biggest thing or the most successful thing for us has been pilot studies. So you know, essentially paid proof, proof of concepts where we help the client solve a, a problem that exists within the business that they are able to scale across their business and, and use that as the business case for a broader investment better a broader continuous improvement initiative, a broader investment in the technology to run the initiative, whatever the case might be, it's, it's been as simple as leading with our expertise to deliver results through a pilot study. Okay. Typically, that then finds its way as, as the mechanism to talk to that through the rest of the organization. So we pick something that we know is going to have an immediate impact in the, the particular department or area that, we are, that we're working in the business. But perhaps if you're talking about a global initiative or a global rollout, that's where can I then multiply that improvement because I have that same piece of equipment or I have that same particular process elsewhere in my business and use that as a mechanism to multiply those results time and again. So we lead with our expertise is probably the thing that has been most successful for us. We always do it and it's something that I've lived by from the founder. It's always in a paid environment. We don't do anything because um, I guess that his fundamental belief was always that people don't value what they don't pay for. Yeah. That's, I guess, one of the things that we do see with some others that people start offering complimentary services and it, it just doesn't lead to the right results. So you are, even the small engagements that are getting you in the door, you're being paid for those as well. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Once you have those, what the, the work that you're delivering a lot of the, the work is up to the company to then put that stuff in place, correct? Any of the findings that you're having, the, does the hard work not start afterwards? Yeah, it does. And, and I guess also part of the reason for continued technology development. So how do we make it easier for our clients to seamlessly integrate with their big systems? As you would imagine, some of our largest customers have significant investments in their financial systems, which are linked to their purchasing systems, which are linked to their maintenance systems, which is linked to where they record all of their equipment ownership and all that sort of wonderful stuff. The improvement initiatives that we make, we spend a lot of time ensuring that we can integrate with those systems and make it seamless for their IT departments to take revised results and, and basically upload those into their management systems. That's one step of the process, but of course, there's a fair bit of significant amount of management of change associated with, well, I've always done it this way for the last 10 to 15 years. Now you're telling me that I need to do it differently. So it's about educating them on on the process that we've used to get the results and also involving them in that process. So so the shop floor guys have, have ownership over the new outcomes. And as well, it's also been a, a big chunk of the growth of our service business as well. Previously, we would get the optimized results, we'd do the improvement activity and go, look, here's how wonderful this is. There's a significant amount of research that's gone on in, in our industry that had suggested 80% of all improvement projects never actually make their way into a client's management system. Hence the rise, I guess, in technology in, in terms of trying to integrate that and make that more seamless for, for customers, but ensuring that we also then are supporting that and, and customer success engineers is, I guess, a, a big next frontier for us because we recognize that, okay, not only have we produced these optimized results and this new potential for our client organization, now we want to ensure that we get it into the system and they're executing against that and we want to sustain that and, and that's really important. I think customer success roles are going to have a big part 
in that space for us. Yeah, for sure. Well, talk about your personal growth over the years. I mean, you've been with the company for 15 years. How have you grown in the last few as a leader? I think um, Ray Kroc, who built out McDonald's, said, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're dead. Um, I'm <laughs> curious as to the growth that you've had over the years. Yeah, sure. Started in the business, as you said, really engaged to help revamp the online presence within about three months. I remember having a discussion with the founder going, you didn't want anybody involved. Well, you did want somebody to help you with some of the marketing aspects, but really what you were interested in was a salesperson. I kind of fought that for a little while, but then I guess got the sales bug and very much had been a kind of business development, sales-led growth within my career, even when coming across to operations we're a small company continuing to grow. Everything was always growth-led and sales-led from my perspective um, and expansion, I guess. I guess the growth as a leader, that the biggest thing that I can probably pinpoint, certainly in the last 24 months, has been coaching and mentoring and advising um, from outside externally for me. So it hasn't been about ongoing education or the like. It's been about finding appropriate mentors to help guide in areas of, of deficiency and then even working with third-party consultants that we've engaged on coaching retainer basis to help us with particular areas of expertise and continue to refine those. There's a lot of obviously buzz around coaching, but certainly the executive team, we've really engaged with that over the last 24 months and found that super valuable. And, and at times, it can be as simple as you're going to some advisory meeting or I know our CEO attends a, a CEO alliance group and you get a simple idea that, that you can take away into, into and bring back into your operations or, or similarly even you can just go talk about something that you're doing and recognize that the problem that you've got is exactly the same as everybody else and nobody else has the silver bullet and what you're doing is is on the right track and is the right way to approach it. Me personally, I've had done a fair bit of work over the last 18 months with a, a particular consultant that's acted as, as a coach and then worked within our business and with other team members within our business as well. So that's been great. And then also broader involvements with other advisories and the like. So for example, this year, I joined the Techstars mentor program in, in Austin. And that was a great introduction into not only a wonderful group of young entrepreneurs and startups, but just to see and hear from other people that had run startups and scaled businesses and get to listen how do they think and what makes them tick and how do they approach it and how do they get the most value for their shareholders or their investors. So that would be the things that I would say. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've truly never really understood why people are so adverse to mentoring or to coaching or to attending mastermind groups when the reality is if you'd rather learn from your own mistakes, that's going to be a really painful journey. If you can actually learn from the people that have gone before you, it just seems like it's a, a much more enjoyable path than having all yeah. the fiction, right? So I think it's I've, I've joked a couple of times with the consultant that I work with that it's almost like a psychology session at times, you know, you can't, or a therapy session. I come in and I talk to him about a whole range of stuff and I give him what my solutions are and, he, and then it'll be like, yeah, that's great. Good idea. And I'm like, what? You didn't help me with anything on that, you know, but yeah. it's actually at times it's that conversation and that point of reckoning. And I think that's what the best coaches do so well is that they allow you to talk through the problem and they guide you on the solution even really subtly and you end up thinking that it was all your idea to begin with. So. Yeah. At the end of the day, as long as you actually get done what needs to get done and you're being nudged in the right direction, sometimes the coach is there to hold you accountable. Sometimes they're there to kick you in the ass. And uh, But it sounds like yeah. you've, you've had some really good ones along the way, which is huge. Talk about the the relationship with you and the CEO. How do you stay on the same page with him? 
Yeah, lots of talking. So we've got the interesting dynamic that he's he's located here in Australia and I'm located obviously in the US for, for the most part. We probably spend, I would imagine it's about six weeks, six to, weeks, six to eight weeks perhaps a year of, of FaceTime together, whether it be he's traveling or wow. I'm traveling. And so we do invest considerably in that and we just get so much value, the ability to lock yourself away together for a week at a time gets great results or we both feel it gets great results. We talk regularly, sometimes more than others. We have a standing meeting every week that is predominantly meant to be strategically focused. But I guess we regularly talk uh, operational matters. So we're probably two to three times a week talking verbally and then use other systems in terms of managing actions and tasks and, and the like to provide updates to one another in, in an electronic environment. We're both, I guess, pretty okay with one another setting tasks for each other and then using that as a mechanism to hold one another accountable for ensuring the stuff gets done that we need to get done. What are some of the tools that you use for that? So we've actually leveraged off our IT and development team. We're using Jira. We tried a number of different action tracking tools previously, but despite the, the fact that the user interface was very IT and development centric, the tool itself was, was super powerful in terms of your ability to use it. So We've now rolled that out across, so myself and the CEO have a, our own individual project that we use. I've got individual projects with each of my general managers that we use to communicate with one another, and an individual project with my sales leader. Our marketing team uses it extensively. I think it's, it's one of the mechanisms that help you operate in remote locations pretty well because you can real-time updates about how stuff's going, I, I guess, is the important piece. When you're thinking about a million things at once, often just that single comment is great. Okay, I can take that off my list and we'll talk about it when we next engage. Well, it's clearly there's no secret to why you guys are being successful. I mean, the amount of information you've relayed and the clarity of your thought and processes and systemization of everything has been huge. Thank you for sharing all this. Is there any kind of parting tip that you'd like to give an emerging leader or a strong leader out there? Anything that you've learned over the years that you think has really helped you that would help them as well? Good question. I think it's pretty typical. I, I would go back to the, and everybody perhaps does this, but I would go back to really find the the mentors or people within networks. So to me, I used to always think about networking was about knowing as many people as you could and, and you know, the typical walk into a bar and uh, function and pass out business cards and the like. And really, to me, the thing that I've learned perhaps the most is it's about finding the right people who then have their own networks to help support you. As a really simple example, when I first moved to Austin, I was happened to be introduced to a particular guy that helps us with legal issues. He's a lawyer, and but really well connected. And I've been able to leverage off his network. So it wasn't about me finding the 25 people that I needed to know. It was you know just finding that one person, and and then that one person then had 25 people within his network that was great. Similarly for for other mentors, wherever you're deficient or wherever you think you can improve yourself the most, go find somebody that really resonates with you. Both from a professional perspective, it's a big thing for me as well to get on to have a good relationship from a personal perspective. Yeah. And if those two things combine, it's a, it's a really powerful approach. And from there, just see where it takes you, I guess. I think that is the powerful kind when you, when you actually have the cultural fit and the business skills that you're looking for. And the reality is virtually everyone out there who's really strong has been helped at some point in their career and they're likely willing to give back at this point as well. So. Darren, thanks yeah, so much for sharing everything with us. I really appreciate all your help today and all your insights and good luck with your expansion and enjoy Australia while you're back there during your winter right now. 
<laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Cameron. All right, bye. Take care. Cheers. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.